discern and recognize the presence of God. Yeah, we learn how to pre- to discern and uh, recognize the coming of God in His smallness. I love uh, Don Dunn's denunciation, annunciation, where he speaks about the the Lord as filling up the whole universe and and beyond the universe. Yes, and yet. Uh, he ends with this uh, this little line, immensity cloistered in thy dear womb. It's really interesting how God, in his immense uh, being and presence, is able to pour himself into very small spaces. Immensity cloistered in thy dear womb. You know? And this is where we want as a church to be able to recognize, to discern the Lord's immensity in small spaces. And we can train ourselves to tune in to these small spaces in which God is actually pouring infinite grace. Now it sounds poetic, it may sound abstract to you, but actually I'm banking on it, I'm betting on it that in small spaces, God actually does reduce us to a place where we get, we understand the, the, the actual dynamics, the singular dynamics of how the Holy Spirit is at work. Most people never get to that. They never get to the cellular level or, or the quantum level, if you want to go further. <laughs> they never get to that. And so they always look at, in, at things of God from the macro point of view, but they never get into the depths of it. What we want to do in the next four weeks or so is to actually look at how God works and how immensity is poured into these places that seem cramped, that seem small, that seem innocuous, that seem podunk. And in this place, we see God at work in these places. Amen? All right, so... Begin by joining the choir, (laughs) those of you who are led. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for your presence. We thank you, Lord, that you came. You came for us, not because we are great people or noble people or intelligent people or wise or courageous or heroic, but because of the fact of your great love. And so we welcome your presence. We welcome you to come and do a work in us. In Jesus' name, Amen. I'd like to continue this theme as, uh, as we look at Deuteronomy chapter 7 and uh, ponder it a little bit. We'll be looking at a few other scriptures besides that. Um, in Deuteronomy 7, we've been looking at Deuteronomy actually chapter 4, chapter 5. Chapter 7 has to do with God making a covenant with the people of God, yeah? Um, and then he tells them how much he loves them. And they are, they are at the mountain, and we are on verse 6 okay, of, of chapter 7 of Deuteronomy. Ready? For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession, out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other other people that the Lord set his love on you 
and chose you, for you are the fewest of all the peoples, of all peoples. But it's because the Lord loves you. Simple as that. But because of the Lord loves you, for you are the fewest of all the people, it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that He swore to your fathers, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the, the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments to a thousand generations. Very interesting. What God is saying to the children of Israel is this, I did not choose you as a treasured possession because of your great number, for you are the fewest of all the people, but because of my great love. To be actually loved, not because you are great, not because you are noble, or because of your, you have great character, but because of sheer love of God. The utter, you know, the, 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 the utter asymmetry the unequal love that God has for us that cannot be reciprocated in any significant way by the one who is receiving that love. God chose you and I because of His love. And that love is manifested in His covenant that He made with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob all the way through. Generations after generations right through Moses, right through to us, because of his great love. Wow. Because of his great love. And you know what happens is this, God is going to teach us that. He's going to teach us that not by my teaching or by anybody's teaching, but by your experience. And how he actually shows us his covenant is to reduce us to very, very, very small, individually, even as a church, even as a people. He will show us how much our confidence is dependent on nothing else except His love. For that to happen, sometimes we experience a stripping, so that nothing can be depended upon except God's love. And we will live through it. You will know it. You will experience it. It's going to happen. He's going to make it happen for you if you, if you have any, any purchase in His purpose. He will make it happen. He will make you know His love. He will make you know that you, have con you can have confidence in Him not because of anything that is safe, not because of anything good, not because of anybody, anything, anybody around you that is good, not because of anyone who can be depended upon, not because of anything that you have that can be depended upon, not because of nature that can be de depended upon, but because of His love for you. You will experience what it is to be miserable. And you will experience how miserable you are. We are talking about as we actually, not you, we. So that you can know that nothing of His love depends upon anything other than Himself. For that to happen, we have to change our mentality 
and not get impressed by things that are external, but to actually hone in on those places in which God is releasing immensity into podunkness, into smallness, into the the, 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 the nondescriptness of our lives. How's that? <laughs> and so what God was saying to the children of Israel could not be just intellectually received. Israel went through tremendous travails to experience the truth of His love. Reduced to nothing. New, reduced to a, a nation that is trampled upon by the nations around so that they would know the confidence that in God and be an instrument of God's glory. I think that's a, quite, an, quite an amazing thing to just, just think about it, you know. Just to think about the fact that in the emptying out of our lives as we were, received, we were worshipping, God is actually filling us. And it may be that you may feel that you're being emptied out, but actually God is filling you. You cannot be filled, you cannot be filled unless you're emptied out, right? Yeah, you have too many things inside, you have to take it out. And, uh, and, and that's what God's doing. You have to ask the question, why do some people not grow in the grace of God, in the glory of God? in their lives, why do they not grow? I'll put it to you that they don't know the kingdom of God. They don't know how the kingdom of God works. You don't, they don't know the heart of God. They haven't been reduced to that singular, essential block of God's godness with respect to them. They have not known the kingdom of God. They know, they've only seen things from outside. They haven't been brought to the tiniest motion of God in which God is actually working their lives. So lots of people don't know the kingdom of God. They don't know how to grow because they don't know how it works. They don't know how it works. They can see impressive things. They can see things from outside, but they don't know how it actually works, how God fulfills His word in them, how God becomes real in, his, in their lives. So... I believe that God is actually doing that in our lives. He's actually bringing us to a place in which He can bring us to a deep knowledge of how He works. And Christmas is a great time for that because it's Christmas that we, we learn how to be quiet. We learn how to listen to Him. We learn how to not be too distracted by bling-bling, but we actually hone into Him. You know, Zechariah uh, says, the Lord is rousing from His place. Be silent. When you want to see how God is about to move, you be silent. You silence everything else. The Lord is about to move. You know, Habakkuk says, the Lord is in His holy temple. Let every person be silent. You see, the thing is this, what God is bringing us to that is to this place of the smallest unit of His workings if I can call it that. I was uh, listening to Bill Johnson, and 
Bill, Bill Johnson said something that just struck me, and, and, and he said this. When God reduces us, He reduces us to the, to the place of strength, so that there's a foundation upon which He can build. Wow. When he, God reduces us, He reduces us to the place of strength, so that all the fluff is gone. He reduces us to a place of strength so that He has a foundation to build upon. I think that's really profound. I've been meditating upon it for the past week or so because of the fact that I've begun to see so clearly how God actually teaches us His works. So when I, was, uh, when I just graduated, I joined this church that was very, very, very small and very, very lacking in resources. And the pastor, he was a man who knew God. But everything that we did was small. Everything was, was small. Even when we prayed for healing, we had small healings. But we would feed upon the Word of God. And we would believe God for things. But it seemed like Everything that God was doing was in small steps for us. So I learned how He speaks in my devotions. I learned how to experience faith and how faith works by hearing, but how that hearing can be actually built up and to, to, a, to a deep conviction. I, I learned how to love, how to serve. It was, it, was, it was one of those things in which everything was done in small, small pieces. My parents, on the other hand, started a church in which the church grew very, very quickly and, and they are blessed to have speakers from overseas every Sunday, great, well-known speakers every Sunday, and the, the church really grew. And I would be in my church and I would look over my shoulder and say, what's going on over there? Wow, wow, they had this speaker, oh, wow, that speaker! For us, we had no money. They had no, we had no money to pay our pastor, neither to pay any missionary. So every, every missionary who came to come to speak to us, in, when they, whenever they came, they had to pay themselves because we were that poor. I was so poor, and, I, and the rest of the church was so poor, that every time I would go out to have a can of Coca-Cola, I'd feel guilty. Because nobody else in the church could afford it. And I had, I had to sneak out with my friends. And we could never enjoy that Coca-Cola. Because you're thinking about everybody else who was poor in our church. We shared our shoes. We shared our... our, our sh we never considered anything that we had our own. And uh, I remember once I went with my pastor uh, to preach. And I... I, I didn't have shoes. I had sandals. So I put on black socks to hide the fact that I was wearing sandals. So it'll camouflage the sandals. And my pastor said to me, you don't have shoes? I said, no, I don't. I'll give you my shoes. Now, I'm a size 11 and a half, minimally, and he's a size 8 and a half. And we went preaching 
day night and night day and night and day and night i wore these eight and a half size shoes by the time we finished this 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 uh this travel trip there was holes in those shoes because my toes were sticking out but every time we had a birthday the church would save up to buy a birthday present and they bought me a pair of shoes it took 20 of them to actually buy enough spend enough to buy a pair of bata shoes you know bata bata is one of the largest um, shoe companies in the world very cheap shoes very cheap shoes but we had that and we would pray for things to come like like we would pray for the next meal. We would pray for bus fare for things. And God would supply us. And when we had bus fare to go, we would be rejoicing and praising the Lord. We would have a prayer meeting because God supplied for this brother or this sister. And during uh, communion, people would bring up their tithes and their offerings and they would put envelopes in there because the Lord would prompt different ones of us to share, to give, say, $10 to this brother or to this sister. Most of my trips to minister were paid for by something that would be found in the offering bag that had my name on it. And so we found we had very little strength, but we knew how God worked in the little. Does that make sense? When that happens, when you're reduced to just very, very weak and very, very poor, and very, very nothing, you begin to appreciate little things. You can see little movements going on. These are things that most people won't see because they only see the big things, but, and they see these things only when they have done, they've happened. But God is going to teach us the things of His kingdom so that we feel so loved by God. People outside, my Christian friends outside were thinking, Michael, you made a mistake. You, why, why did you do this? You know, look at your life. You know, you come from a nice family and, you know, you have all these things. But look at you now. I had lost, honestly, I had lost 60 pounds. People look at me and they thought I was, in, I was, I was unhealthy. But actually, I was more healthy than, than ever before. I had 60 pounds to lose. And I remember those days, some of you, those of you who live overseas, how many of you know what's Milo? <laughs> no, I mean, there I go. Milo, right? Milo is one of those things that it's, in those days, people thought it was a health food. I don't think it is. It's just got lots of chocolate and lots of sugar. In my family, I grew up, if you, if you want to make a cup of Milo, you put three, keeping two teaspoons. Is that correct? Is that the, the dosage? <laughs> and I remember in this church, I had just joined this church, and I was making Milo for myself, because they were saying, go on, take some Milo. I was feeling so bad, I didn't want to use their resources. They said, go ahead, take, take, take the Milo. So I took three keeping teaspoons. Uh, and says, uh, Michael, we actually usually just take one flat teaspoon. So, 
Then I wanted to go full-time, all right? And so my pastor said to me, when you go full-time, you're not going to have a salary. We have to know whether you're really called or not. So if God calls you full-time, then you, God must supply you the money. And you're not allowed to tell anybody you're going by faith or else people will start giving to you. So you wouldn't know whether you, well, you're called or not. But anyway, so for two years, I lived without a salary. Every time I had to do ministry, I had to pay for bus fare to go, <laughs> go and do ministry. And you know what? There will always be a situation where I'm walking along the road, someone comes from the other side of the road and said, Hey, Michael, I felt I couldn't have any peace or any rest until I gave you money. And she would pour in me coins because she herself was poor. I remember that one, one time that that happened. And so the, I had many, many stories of that. I learned when I was, had very, very little to watch in these small spaces how God actually does things. How God supplies. So every promise that God made, I experienced it to a small extent. I never got thousands and thousands of dollars. Never. I never saw cancer healed. I never saw that. But I saw headaches being healed. I saw people with like muscle aches being healed. We put everything that we had into praying for someone. We pray and we pray. We never stop praying until that person got healed. And we never experienced some, some sickness in which the person never got healed because we would pray until the healing took place. In the meantime, during that period, sometimes a long period, we will experience the movements of the Spirit to, to, to increase our faith, to challenge our faith, spiritual warfare, all that. Until someone got healed. And it was not, it's not that they were healed of big, big diseases. It was just little things. You know? But I learned in, the, in those early days how to experience little things from God. Zechariah says in, in Zechariah chapter 2, Do not despise the day of small beginnings. Because the day of small beginnings are not just the promise of more. No, it's not an excuse for not having more. The day of small beginnings is the day when God actually opens up the micro dynamics of how His Spirit works in us. So that if we are faithful and little, He gives us more. In about five years, we started, I started getting involved in planting churches and all that. We planted 35 churches. We saw healings take place like nobody's business. We saw cancers healed. We saw the blind healed. We saw the deaf raised. We saw all these things. But we had to learn it from scratch. We had to learn it what, what it means to actually see a healing. What actually goes on, goes on in our soul and our spirit when we are praying. Does that make sense? The Lord actually begins small things so that we know the principles of His kingdom and how to work with the Holy Spirit. We learn it as we are children. And as we are learning as children, we learn how to take note in the way that children would, 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 would do so, with a certain inordinate attention, a certain way in which they just have a way of clinging on to things. You know, 
holding on to things, sometimes obsessively. So anyway, I wanted to, to talk about that because of the fact that there are dynamics that are involved in God teaching us His ways and doing things in our lives. But if you can hang with small, you will enter into a zone in which God will teach you and me the things that He has. The, that's why I love church planting, because church planting, you have to start from scratch. Anything that could add to zero is a learning thing. Anything that could add to zero people in the church, you learn a lot. Anything that will add to zero healings, you add one, you learn a lot. Amen? So, I just want to say that because of the fact that this, this can give us a good introduction to what God is doing in our midst. Amen? Now, what God does is that He deals with us often, and when He deals with us, He actually um, does a, a, a sort of a, a reduction in our own lives, um, personally. And when that, when that happens, it brings us to a point where we have no more dependence on anything outside of God. We are all about God. <laughs> yeah? All right. Please turn with me to Judges chapter 6. And we'll just look at one example of that. Judges chapter 6. All right, ready? This is the story of Gideon, and we are not going to look at the whole story of Gideon, but I just wanted to say, uh, begin by Gideon's, by looking at Gideon's encounter with the angel. Uh, we'll look at verse 11. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, 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 which belongs to Joash, the Abyssalite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Ooh. And Gideon said to him, Please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our, our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian, and so Gideon is speaking to God with the full burden of the oppression of the Midianites. They are huge and, 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 and numerous group, uh, company of people. They would come during certain seasons from the mount, up the mountains and you, they would they'll just like, be like swarms of bees. And they would just come and they would just take everything that they wanted and then they would go. Yeah? And so Gideon was afraid of them and he was beating out um, wheat in the, in the hi hiding place away from the Midianites. So Gideon is not a very, very, uh, feeling very bold at that moment. Feeling scared and feeling questioning about God. And he says, if God is with us, why doesn't, why doesn't, don't, doesn't things look much better than what they, sh they are looking now? And so, the angel only says this, verse 14. The Lord turned to him, yeah, in the, in, in, in the person of the angel, and said, 
Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you. And I'm just going to stop here for a little bit because what the angel was saying is this. You know the strength that you have? The smallness, the littleness that you have? That's enough. Go in that. Even though God may reduce you to that after all the midnight uh, uh, robbery, you can go in that. And the, the great thing that I, 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 I see out of that is this. We may feel that we have been reduced personally to something really small, something really weak, and something really fragile. And God says, that is enough to go on. That is enough for me to work on. Amen? You're not excited? That makes us all candidates, man. Come on, we can do it. Go in this time, Mike. We, Gideon says, I'm the smallest, the youngest of the smallest tribe, uh, smallest clan of the smallest tribe, of the smallest nation. Go in this your strength. And when God actually reduces us to this, this level, God says, now go in this your strength. More are the children of the desolate than the children of the married one. Isn't that amazing? You are in a good place. You are in a place where God can actually do stuff in your life. So he does this. Let's go to chapter 7. So, many of us know the story. God actually proved through signs uh, that Gideon was the man, the weakest, the youngest of the weakest, of the smallest, of the smallest, that he would lead Israel. Well, let's go to chapter 7. In chapter 7, Gideon is, has now accepted his call. And we'll read it from verse 1. Then Jerubbaal, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him, rose early and encamped beside the spring of Harod. And the camp of Midian was north of them, by the hill of Moreh in the valley. And the Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many, wow, for me to give the Midianites into their hands, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Now therefore proclaim in the ears of the, ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned, and 10,000 remained. That's a reduction of over half. Verse 4. And the Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many. Take them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. Any one of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, shall go with you. Any one of whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water, and, people, and, the, and the Lord said to Gideon, Everyone who laps the water with his tongue as the dog laps, you shall set by your, himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink. And the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouth, was 300 men. And all the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. And the Lord said to Gideon, With the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand. And let all the others go, every man to his home. And so the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets. And he set all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, but retained the 300 men. And the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. So they are very close to the, to the camp of Midian too many for you. It's too many for you. Twice. 
Domestically, as I shared with you before, was the leader of the Greeks. And there are three Persian wars. Some of you may remember um, three Persian wars, right? The first war, the Battle of Marathon, the Greeks won. The second one they lost, that was the Battle of Thermopylae, where you have the 300, right? It was a devastating loss. And they sacked Athens because of that. The third, the third um, um, Persian War happened this way. The Greeks knew that they could not handle the overwhelming strength of the Persians. And whenever the Persians would come in their swarms, their overwhelming might, the Greeks would have absolutely no strength to encounter them. And as I said, they had sacked Athens a few times. Themistocles realized that this situation could not carry on. And he came up with a plan. The plan was very difficult to swallow because it involved everybody who lived in Athens vacating Athens and leaving their home and going to stay on the island of Salamis, which is a rocky island, not very hospitable, not very uh, fertile, and be just all there okay, in the island of Salamis. Somehow, enough conviction was in him to be able to convince all the Greeks that that was the only way to do it. The Greeks did not want to face the Persians. But Themistocles understood that if the Persians were not dealt with head on, this situation would be continuous oppression and continuous um, um, savagery for a long time. No, no end in sight. And he was the only one who came up with a plan. I shared with you before that he was the one who said that the, 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 the Athenians should, and the Greeks should actually start becoming a naval power. They were able to build 378 ships. But the Persians had a much vaster fleet. And so he sent a message to Xerxes to come out and get us. What is he thinking? Right? But he has only 378 ships. Herodotus said... He has 371 ships, actually, because the totals that were in Herodotus were, were wrong. So anyway, most people think it's about 378 or 71. And the, and the Persians had about uh, 1,207 ships. It's an overwhelming thing. And he's told, send a message to Xerxes, we are in Salamis. Now, you've got to understand that in the Peloponnesian um, uh, Peninsula, Salamis is like a narrow uh, waterway um, in which if you want to come in, you have to come in through a waterway that was about eight miles, only eight miles broad. And so the Persians came and they sent their big fleet to Salamis. And the Greeks had only 371 or 378 ships. 
And so as the Persians came, they could not get through that waterway. There were too many. Too many. And the Greeks were able to defeat them in the Battle of Salamis and go back to their home. Too much. Too much. And what Gideon was basically saying is this. Send back those who are fearful. There's fear. And one of the first things that God does with us, deals with us, is to deal with our fear. Because fear will cause us to not move any further. Most people are stuck because of the fear of what will happen if they step forward. For some people, fear is a spirit that's gripping them. For some, fear is just more a matter of like not wanting to, to take a risk, not being compelled by that the risk is worth it. But what God said to Gideon is, tell the people, those who are fearful, go home. And so God, by doing that, reduced the number from 32,000 to 22,000. To 22,000. Fear is something that God deals with us when He reduces us. He reduces us and He brings that fear up. And that is the that becomes the big battle that we experience in order for us to experience God. And the answer to fear is not bravery, it's courage. Courage is different from just being brave. Courage is, is different, it's not an emotion like fear is. Cowardice is the opposite of fear. Courage is heart. It's taken from the, the word cur, right? Richard the Lionheart is cur de lion. Richard the lion, heart. heart. So courage is something that we can experience that causes us to make moves in spite of the fact that we are filled with fear. That's why God says, be strong and of good courage. What is needed is courage. And God can give us courage, even though we have fear. So that the person who passes through is not the person who doesn't have the capacity of having fear. There are some people out there, they're crazy. You don't have to be that. You can keep your fear if you want. But you've got to add courage to that. Amen? I have a little dog. We have a little dog. It's Zephy's dog. He's a, he's a multi-poo. Really small dog. In fact, I'll show you a picture of it. Boom! His name is Paddington. For his station in life. Um, can we have a look at that? That's Paddington. He's a very courageous dog. Every time we take a walk and we pass by two fierce German shepherds, he will rock a lot faster. <laughs> He's intimidated by them. One day, you know, I, I'm, I love dogs, but most of the time I have no attention. I don't have enough attention span for them. That has changed. I have a new relationship with Paddington because I have a new respect for him. 
I've been converted. Farrington is held in high regard by me now. One day, uh, Kaylin's boyfriend, Ryan, told Elisa, Hey, Elisa, pretend to whack me with a cushion. So, Elisa whacked him with a cushion. Paddington was sitting on his, nearby him, or on his lap, I'm not sure. And Paddington immediately ran away. And so, Elisa was playing, and so she just started whacking Ryan with the pillow, okay, the cushion. And then, I'm told, Paddington turned around, scared like anything, and stepped in, and, you know, Ryan was just going like that, and he stepped into that space. He was so scared, but he blocked Elisa's cushion from hitting Ryan. From then on, he had my respect. All the treats he needs, he can have them. Courage. He was scared like anything. But he stood in the gap. I want to put it to you that actually God has that for us. In these constricted spaces, God actually is doing a work in our lives. And if you find that fear has taken over you when you are reduced, God is actually giving you courage. You don't have to be unfearful. But you can have courage. Courage is the decision that we make to obey God in spite of the fact that we are afraid. And you can't do it by yourself. But you can pray. You can pray in the midst of tremendous discouragement, tremendous fears. In 2019, the Lisu people who populate China, Burma, or Myanmar, Thailand mainly, especially the hills, Yunnan in China, yeah, there are about 700,000 there. There's about 400,000 in Burma or Myanmar on the, on the hills. The, the, the Lisu people celebrated the 100th anniversary of J.O. Fraser coming to, um, uh, to the Lisu people in Yunnan and the church starting. Yeah? They, they celebrated their 100th anniversary. There were hundreds of thousands of people who came for the celebration because of tremendous revival. It is estimated that let me sure, make sure I get, get you these, these figures correctly. It is estimated that half of the 700,000 Lisu in China are Christians. It is estimated also that 75% to 80% conservative estimates of the 400,000 in Myanmar are Christians. The smallest number of, of Myanmar people are in Thailand. But still, for that anniversary, a thousand Thais, Thai Lisu people came for the celebration. So you can imagine what it was. And the Lisu tribe 
was first met by J.O. Fraser. Uh, you read Mountain Rain. Um, I'm sure you'll, 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 you'll be blown away by that. But um, it's, it's interesting to, to see how God does big things, starting with really small and almost desolate situations. It's amazing. Then in, in, um, in the China Inland Mission um, reports, um, it was written that the Lisu are notoriously barren and unfa- un- unfruitful as an area of missionary activity. J.O. Fraser entered in and immediately experienced tremendous depression. As a missionary, he went, in, went there about 1908, 1909, 1908 to 1909. He did language learning and all that. The, the Lisu had this uh, legend that said their ancestors, of the ancestors, there were three main ancestors, the, the, a Chinese, a Chinese brother, a Shan brother, and a Lisu brother. The Chinese brother could write but was not that careful. So he would write with his paintbrush and left it out in the rain. And the chicken came and, and walked all over his writing. And that is why the Chinese characters look so much like chicken feet. <laughs> that's a, that's a Lishu, Lishu legend. The Shan people are very much more careful. And so nothing happened. And so that's, that's why they had retained their, their writing. But the Lisu, according to the Lisu themselves, the Lisu son or the Lisu brother was, did not care at all about writing. And so the writing was eaten up by dogs. As a result of that, there's a legend, there's a legend that says that, that one day a white man would come and teach them how to read. J.O. Fraser did not know that. But in his desolation in Yunnan, he called a prayer group to pray. He had read the tract by Jesse Penn Lewis, The War on the Saints, and he said, I need prayer. So he called, his, he, he, not emailed, but mailed, actually mailed uh, his people back in England to pray for him. And so there was a small group of people that began praying. As they began to pray, he had confidence that their prayer was important. He did not give them abstract things to pray or general things. He gave them very detailed things to pray. And he said, there's so much sickness there, please pray for healing. And as they began to pray, pray, small group of people, the, the oppression and the depression began to lift. And Gerald Fraser writes about very, in very detailed and very intimate ways about how he felt, how his feelings could be calibrated in terms of the, the, the lifting, the lifting, the lifting. Does that make sense? You don't hear a story about, well, I was in depression and then later on I just thought it was okay and don't, we don't know what's actually happening in, in between. Because he was meticulous with the small things, we get to read how depression lifted. Does that make sense? See, when we go through things in which we experience some desolation, some reduction, 
we begin to actually enter into the actual workings, the inner workings of how God actually works. So he begins to talk about that. And he talks about how, how boldness began to, ha- to happen in him. He talks about how you know, he used to get sick all the time, but then he would get better. And sickness began to be less. And then he began to realize, as he read Jesse Penn Lewis, that there are demonic powers that if you could actually pray and break them, there could be these powers over whole tribes that can be broken off. And he began to experience that. And more and more, the prayer groups began to increase, began to increase, and he began to experience more and more in his life. Amen? By 1911, there were scores of tribes, Lisu tribes, that, had, that were all Christian. There were scores of tribes that were fully Christian. Isn't that amazing? But there was, this, there was also another woman, and I'm sure many of you who have heard of her, Isabel Kuhn. Any one of you? Isabel Kuhn? Yes? Green leaf in drought and all that, yeah? And by encouragement of the scriptures. Um, she came around uh, 1920-something, and she was really used by God, but when she first came, she had a terrible time. She worked with, with J.O. Fraser. And one of the hardest things for her is the food, was the food. She had to live with fleas and she had to live with food. And one of the hardest things for her was to eat large chunks of fat. Large chunks of fat. Tofu. She couldn't stand it. But she said, as she did that, God gave, him, him with, gave her, with each meal, grace to eat that stuff. Isn't that amazing? Such courage, right? But comes from God. Comes from prayer. Comes small at first, but increases, increases, increases. If you and I are willing to enter into the small, the small micro moves of God, God will work tremendous things. He'll do immense things even in the, in the dear womb, so to speak. Praise God. So it says, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from, and hurry away from Mount Gilead. We are on verse uh, 3. Verse 4, The Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many. Take them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. And anyone of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, shall go with you. And anyone of whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, Everyone who laps water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink. And the number of those who lap, putting their hands to their mouth, were 300 men. All the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. What's wrong with drinking water by kneeling down? What, what, what that test was, no, no condemnation is given against the people who, who kneel down to, 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 to drink the water. Was that the, the point is that for those who scooped up the water to drink, it's very inefficient, right? It doesn't satisfy you. Whereas the people who... Who kneel down and 
because they were so thirsty, so exhausted, could not help thinking about their own discomfort. And what, 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 what God was saying to Gideon is this, the ones that I'm going to be using, the place of strength will be a company of people who somehow are not stuck on themselves, in which it's not all about themselves. It's not all about their safety or their comfort or their satisfaction on themselves. No, no word of condemnation is going, is go, goes out about the others. Neither the 22,000 that are left, nor the 10,000 or the uh, 9,700. But he said, the ones that I'm going to be raising up to use to bring victory, the place of my immensity, are these 300. I think God is calling us to be that. For that to happen, there is a way in which we have to look at our Christian life not as everything that is centered upon our own well-being, but for the good of God, for God's sake, for love's sake. What say you? God can actually set us free from the way in which the gravitational pull of our own desires and all this towards ourselves and set us free, cut us loose from that gravity of our own narcissism, our own setting, stuck, getting stuck on ourselves and being a people who are set free to love God and love other people. What say you? That is what God's doing. The deep thing that God's doing by the, the reduction of God upon our lives is to bring us to the place of His strength, which is to His love. So that love actually motivates us. So you never get, get involved in a relationship for what the relationship can do for you. You never come to church because of what the church can do for you. You never enter into a relationship with God because of what God can do for you. Even though He loved us, we love Him because He first loved us. But God begins to set us free and He brings us by such reductions into a place in which we are filled with His love. He can do that, you know. On the cross, when Jesus died, He took upon Himself all our self-centeredness. He took upon our, Himself our self-will, our body of sin, and set us free from that thing that constantly is curved in towards ourselves. And we make, in our, our new redeemed self, can be set free to live for God, for God, and, through, and in that being for others as well. So when Bonhoeffer says that Christian life is for others, he doesn't mean we are living for others, we're living for God, and God gives us a special kind of love for others. Amen? I think that God, God is actually bringing us to these 300. He's, I think that's what he's doing. I think God is actually loving us so much that at the end of the day, it's not because of the fact that we feel safe that we, are, we, have, we have confidence, but because of the fact that we are loved by God. And we know the love of God for us. And know that come hell or high water, it's the love of God that will be all that we need to stand. And He has to bring us to small things so that He can do that work of grace in us so that before you become a world changer, 
You experience the love of God in the little ways. And so you bless each one in the little ways, not counting numbers. Amen. In the, in the recent, recent, uh, recent months, I've been told by many people, you should have a bigger platform for your ministry. You should, have a bigger, you should go and, and do bigger things for the kingdom of God. I said to them, you don't understand the love of God. The love of God is not about you or me or becoming, becoming big. The love of God is seen in the way in which He loves even me. Even you. The reason why we don't want to go for necessarily big things without understanding the way in which God loves on, an, on, a, on, a, on, a, on a micro level is because of the fact it's the love of God. If you move from that, it's something else. If you don't have that seed, then you are actually creating some other thing that is of a different nature. It may look Christian, but it's not of, of God. And I would go as far as to say that, that many Christian things are not of God because it doesn't come from the seed of God's love. God say you, the nature of the kingdom is this. The seed is first the blade, right? And then the, first the blade, then the, then the shoot, and then the full head. It's the way it works. That's the way it works. It's an organic thing in which God begins to do something small. It's not organizationally imposed upon that. You, once you put an organizational structure upon that, without it growing from, from, from the bottom up, you actually impose upon it something that is of an alien, alien nature to the things of the kingdom of God. And that is why I value when God is actually reducing me, or humbling me, or humiliating me, whatever, whatever it takes. Even humiliation, whatever it takes, so that I could have the love of God. Because if I don't have the love of God, I have something, I don't know what it is, but I know a lot of people have that, but I don't want it. I don't want that. I want it to be the love of God, even if it is with one person. If it's just my family at all. But what happens is this. We are distracted by other things. And as a result of that, when God is dealing with us, we can't quite focus. We can't quite hear because of the fact that our mind is off into other things. So may I suggest to you that you, if you want to apply this to the most basic thing, think about prayer life. Okay? Prayer life. I've been sharing this uh, with um, our daily prayer. The way to hear from God is not to look all around you at things that you're praying for. The way to hear from God is to turn our eyes towards Jesus. Look full in His wonderful face. He becomes the lens, the screen from which everything that we will know will come. Anything outside of Jesus will be our own intelligence or our own perception or our own observation. And it may be all true, but it may not be from what, what God is saying. And so, may I suggest to you that when we pray, you try to set your mind upon Him so that you're facing Him rather than facing the concerns that you're praying for. 
Because only in Him does something special happen where He becomes that which stands between you and everything else that you're praying for, everything else outside of you, and He becomes the rock, He becomes the the lens, He becomes the presence, He becomes the screen, He becomes the, the glory through which we see everything else. Hey, what do you think? If you focus on other things, you, those things will hook you in into another anxiety. If I pray for my children and, I'm cons- and I think about my children, I'll get more anxious than anything else. If I pray for, the, for my children and I set my heart towards God, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in His wonderful face, and the things of earth will go strangely dim, then what remains is only what He is putting in my mind. God speaks to the the prophet Zechariah and he says to him, if you keep my ways, I will cause you to rule in my house and have charge over my courts. But the most important thing is, and you will walk and have access among these ones. Who are these ones? The angels. You will walk among the angels. What does that mean? It means that your space will be the space in which there's not other things but the this rarefied space in which the angels are present, the presence of God, the courts of the Lord are there. The courts of angels, the courts of the sons of God, the courts of God. What say you? I want to be there because, look, I can be everywhere and I'll be distracted by everywhere. If, I'm in, 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 if I have access to where the courts of the Lord are, then whatever comes to my mind, I can rely on it. Amen? Let us pray. Let us pray. Jesus, we thank you for your great love for us. That you will not stop until we become a genuine people filled with you. So we invite you to come Have your own way, Lord. Have your way. If those of you who are facing fears, anxieties, hopelessness about the future, you're shaken, I invite you to open your hand and just invite the courage of God to come. Courage is a whole different thing. It has the presence of God in it. It holds you and gives assurance. Not proof, but assurance. That all is well. Even in obeying Him. Lord, we welcome your courage. We welcome your freedom, your presence. We welcome you, Lord. Come, Holy Spirit. We pray for every person who felt stuck. Stunted, maybe, even. We welcome you 
you are our teacher, you are our counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father. We thank you, Lord, that in the days ahead, Lord, you will reveal yourself and reveal your ways to us. In Jesus' name, amen.